Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Today's guest is Lori Robinson Hayden. She's an award-winning lawyer and agent of change, and she personifies the pioneering spirit that defines this podcast. During a nearly 20-year stint in various leadership roles in CBS's law department, she had the vision, energy, and passion to found the Corporate Council Women of Color, the largest and most influential professional organization of its kind. What started as an informal group of friends exchanging contact information in 2004 has now become a powerhouse network of nearly 5,000 women of color devoted to empowering one another and lifting each other up. I'm proud to say that Cypherth played a role in the early days by helping Lori set the organization up as a 501c3 organization. Yes, she's a Cypherth alum too. Listen in to today's conversation to get a feel for Lori's infectious energy as we discuss the need for an organization like CCWC, especially for first-generation women lawyers of color, her advice for getting buy-in and support from employers for diversity initiatives, and why people shouldn't be afraid to walk away when they don't get it. What's next for CCWC as it turns its focus from the chief legal officer space to the boardroom? It was a fascinating conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Lori, thanks so much for spending time with us. You were about to start with a story about how you started uh, CCWC as a 501c3 corporation. I'd love to hear the story. Then we're going to come back into your earlier years. Well, at the time, Corporate Council Women of Color was a small group of people meeting for dinner in New York City at restaurants like B. Smith's, which was open at the time and now closed. And what we would do is we would do these regional receptions around the country because word of mouth started in just building around the work that we were doing with Corporate Council Women of Color. And I believe it was in 2004, we had reached maybe about a thousand women of color attorneys who worked in-house for Fortune 1000, Forbes 2000 legal departments. And then out of the blue, I got a call from Lori Ullman, who's a partner at your firm, Safe Earthshaw. And she said, Lori, you know, we are aware of the work that you're doing with your organization. And we have a pro bono department and we would like to incorporate your work as corporate counsel, women of color, as a 501c3 at no cost to you. So because of Lori Oman and the help of Safe Barf Shaw, they helped fast track us by light years because they put together this paperwork for 501c3. And frankly, I hadn't been thinking about CCWC as a 5013c3 at that time, but they did the work. And in 2004, we were officially incorporated as such. Well, that's a wonderful story. I'm glad we were able to help. Let's move back a little bit in time because you you sort of picked up when you had a thousand people, but the true start of CCWC is sort of, if I understand the story you've told, is around your dinner table with just about 10 women of color who you're putting together a directory. Yes. And, you know, all of this really started from the early days when I came to New York City as a young lawyer, trying to find my way, trying to find mentors, trying to find sponsors, just trying to find people to connect with. And you have to understand this was before the luxuries of 
Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, TikTok, Instagram, whatever you're using to easily connect with people. In you know, 1998, when I was starting, none of that existed. So if you wanted to meet people, you had to get out and pound the pavement and go to events and network with a business card. But it just made it difficult to find diverse people because we were in New York City. We just we didn't know where the other people were. Right. So it was hard to find people. So we did have the 10 and we would gather for dinner and just as a way to support each other in our careers. And at one of the dinners, I said, you know, hey, I'm going to send you all an email. And in this email, I want you to tell me where you went to school, your practice area, your email, and where you're located. And I'm going to go to Office Depot and create a makeshift directory. And I'm going to send it to all of you free of charge. You don't have to pay for it. But that way you have this directory on your desk and you can just pull it out at any time and reach people of color in the city. And those 10 people, by the end of the week, each person, I believe, sent it to about five people that they knew. And by the end of the week, we had found 50 women of color. And we were like, can you believe this? There are 50 women of color in New York City. (laughs) And then I went to Office Depot. I printed my first little directory with the 50 names and I mailed it to the 50 women. And then it was like, well, you forgot this person and you forgot that person. And what about this person? So then we did another reprinting later that month. And then we had 100 people. And, you know, the rest is history. That's amazing. Of course, I'm struck by the fact that you must be dealing with a whole generation of people now that find the idea of printing off a directory and mailing it to be quaint. But it shows the power of networks, doesn't it? It really does. And it's really what LinkedIn has become, because really, I think they took my idea. I probably should should have patented the idea, but you should have. uh, (laughs) They have the person's where they were, where they went to school, you know, their contact information. And that's what we did old school style with pen and paper printing stamps in the U.S. Postal Service. Well, that's fabulous. Let's let's move back a little bit. We're going to come back to CCWC and talk about its mission and some of the many accomplishments, both of you and the organization. But you grew up in Maryland, right? Yes. What were your role models? What did you want to be when you were a child? Did you always want to grow up to be a lawyer? Well, that is my story and, and my way of the passion that I have for the work that I do today is that I was raised in Prince George's County, Maryland, which is right outside of Washington, D.C. And my neighborhood and my environment, it was predominantly African-American. So I was always in the majority. I never knew what it was like to be a minority until I started my professional career as a lawyer. And what I would say to the fact that everyone in my community, they were role models and they encouraged us that you could be whatever you want to be. Our neighborhood consisted of generals and doctors, lawyers, educators. And I remember when I was six years old, my parents used to ask me, well, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I would say, I want to be a hot dog lady. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know where the concept, (laughs) but that was like a running joke for like a year that I wanted to be this hot hot dog lady. But even then the thought of being such, there was always encouragement around it versus discouragement. My father, he was a lawyer, a labor and employment lawyer, and he passed away my first year in law school. And I'm just glad he was able to see me off to school. 
And I think that is why I eventually fell into labor and employment law through divine guidance. But I initially went to law school to be an environmental lawyer because one of our neighbors was a high ranking official with the Environmental Protection Agency and an expert in environmental racism. So I was going to go to law school to become an environmental lawyer until I took the class. And then I said, you know what, no, (laughs) super fun and circling and all that. That's not really, that doesn't speak to me. And I made an about face and found my way into labor and employment law. You know, many of us went to law school thinking we'd be one thing and found our way into labor and employment law. Your story has resonance with me. I'm curious. So you had this wonderful network growing up of role models and supportive people in your neighborhood and your family. Is CCWC sort of an effort to recreate some of that on a larger scale in the profession? Yes, I think you you really hit the nail on the head of what it is and what it has become. And to your point, you know, I never went to law school to start a nonprofit. That was never anywhere on my radar and my thought process. And it just goes to show you, you can make all the plans that you want. But at the end of the day, you may end up on a totally different path. But I do believe, you know, 17 years later, as I look at our work and what we have done and the countless people we've been able to help, that it is just that. It is that environment that I grew up with that I want our legal profession to be for many of the diverse lawyers who, like me in the early careers, just struggled with finding the mentor and the support for career guidance. And we just had our CCWC Los Angeles conference, and I have even more insight and understanding. But we did a panel on first-generation lawyers and the challenges that they deal with being first-generation. And I mean, I was fortunate that both of my parents went to college and my whole family went to college. My aunts went to college and that my father was a lawyer. But I would say like 90% of the audience in LA in September of 2021 stood up when I asked how many of your first generation lawyers and first generation period. And the majority of the people stood up. And one of the takeaways that I also gathered from the convention was that one of them said to me, hey, listen, you know, my mother and my father, they have a third grade education. They can't give me career advice. So a lot of the advice and the guidance that we get is from corporate council women of color. So that was like a light bulb moment to me that, hey, wow, you know, I never really thought about it that people don't even have the support within their family to know about negotiating your salary and how to ask for stocks and how to pay off your student loans and how to go for that promotion. And this is like the beacon and light for so many lawyers who are out there on their own without that family support, which I have taken for granted that I had my parents. That must be an interesting dynamic that you you deal with. The organization has gotten so large now. You've got, what, like 4,500 was the number I saw, perhaps? 4,700, yes. 4,700. I don't want to understate it. 
But within that community, and yes, I understand they're women of color, but you must have all of these diverse threads, the first generation, but then you must also have age generation, women who grew up in one generation and women growing up in the current generation. You must have all of these threads that you have to sort of deal with to try to find programming that fits these various needs. How do you manage that diversity, those challenges? It must be incredibly complicated. It is complicated because, you know, also many organizations, they service one demographic. So it's not a black women's organization. It's women of color. So every group has unique issues and needs. For example, we have a very strong AAPI demographic in corporate council women of color. And this year, with a lot of the Asian hate that was happening, it made us have to pause and create a forum where we could hear their voices, which we had a a seminar and they talked about the challenges that they face. And I don't think I had ever really heard the story of AAPI, which is enlightening to me. But to your point, you know, we have to be understanding to everybody's story and understand that everybody's story is different. And even generationally, you know, we have many people who were with us in the beginning who they are now retiring mm-hmm. or they have retired. But what I say to them is, look, if you're retired, we'll give you a comp ticket to come because you have a lot of knowledge and information that you can still be sharing with those of us who are still in the juggle, in the struggle. So we try to encourage our boomers to be engaged. We want our millennials engaged. We've created a session specifically for them so that their needs are getting met. And then we have, you know, the people in my generation where, you know, we're still working, we're still in the game. We still have another 20, 30 years to go. And, you know, we need the insight of the young people so that we know about TikTok and (laughs) all of these things that we might not know about, but also that we're pulling from the strength of our boomers. So, All that to say, what we do is we ask everybody for input and feedback. What type of programming would you like to have? What type of topics speak to you? And we we make sure that we try to incorporate as many ideas from other people that we can. It sounds like that it's been an incredible learning journey for you personally, that as you're dealing with these various interests and concerns, you're learning as well, which must be really cool. I am learning every single day. And, you know, even with COVID-19 and having to deal with the challenges last year of not having a live conference because we were in the midst of the pandemic and having to shift to do virtual, that was a whole nother learning curve of technology and trying to figure out how to do it and how to pull it off. And even this year, we then did live and virtual, which again was another level of understanding of technology, which I really never had to deal with before because it was a live event. But I do try to stay in the mode of learning. I love to take classes online, continuing education, not even, doesn't even have to be legal. You know, I'll take classes at NYU. I'll take classes, it might be how to better manage events or how to do a production, whatever it is. But I then can take that skill set and bring it into CCWC to make the programming relevant and interesting to our constituents. 
Well, you've clearly succeeded given the success of the organization and the growth of the organization. Thank you. Did you ever imagine you would have the type of success and the type of response when you first began sending out the first directory and began to see the network at play? Because it's it's amazing, the growth of your organization. Thank you. Well, <laughs> I like to say if I had known it would have been as much work as it is, I probably would not have done it because <laughs> this organization is a lot of work. And it's a lot of work because you're creating. And, you know, lawyers, there's one side of the brain that we usually draw from to analyze data. This really forces and pushes me to use other side, which is the creative part. And then it's not only the creative part of the ideas, but then putting the pieces around the execution of the ideal, which that in and of itself is very time consuming. And some of this work is exceedingly nitty gritty tedious. So what I say is the organization has had so much success because it struck a nerve with so many women of color who are out there in our legal profession that struggles with diversity and inclusion. And I believe we're going to get there, but we were all feeling isolated and alone. And this is just a way to bring people together to say, you know what? I'm not the only one. There are more people out there like me and I have the strength to make it. It's got to be incredibly gratifying to have built this community. So during a lot of the growth of CCWC, you were at CBS, right? Yes. And I've heard some of your prior interviews talking about the support you got from CBS, which I assume is accurate. That is very accurate. I don't know anything about the CBS legal department, but I think it's probably not typical for a large legal department to be so supportive of someone who's trying to build something as even as amazing as you're building. Tell me a little about the dynamics that enabled you to get their support to accomplish this. I was exceedingly fortunate. I have friends who have worked at companies who've tried to launch and start stuff, and they have been met with haters who blocked it and stopped it and killed it on the vine before it even was able to take off. So I think for me, I was so fortunate that at the time that CCWC was getting off the ground, we had a general counsel who he had left CBS to go to Aetna. And then he came back to CBS when CBS split from Viacom. His name is Louis J. Briscoe. And it was fortunate for me that Lou was a thought leader, number one. Number two, he just got it. He understood. And I think as I look at my time of developing CCWC with his support, I was fortunate, too, that he was an actualized individual. You know, when he came to CBS, he might have been in his late 50s, early 60s, but he had been a general counsel since he was 30 years old. So this was someone who was accomplished and not going to be threatened by my work and my efforts. And he was supportive of the efforts because he believed in diversity and inclusion. So his support and the senior leader's support of CBS Corporation at the time, I think because those individuals were such that they just felt this is good for the profession. This is good for CBS. Let's rally behind her. 
Laura, you just go and do and we're supportive of you. But I know that that is a very unique situation and many people do not have that type of opportunity. But, you know, I was with CBS for almost two decades and I was supported all the way. And I was able to build CCWC from the ground floor with CBS's support. And I'm really grateful for that opportunity. That's an amazing story. You said people are meeting with resistance for their own startups and their own efforts. What advice do you give someone who's struggling to get the support of their employer for efforts like this? Well, you know, we we actually just had a, I did a masterclass at the last conference on how to pursue your passion in addition to your daytime job. And I think we we just have to be open and honest when we do something like this. You have to know your culture. If you're in a work environment where you know that your supervisor is a jealous supervisor and won't support it, or the senior management, they do not support external outreach and community efforts, is that a place you need to be at? There's a talent war out here, and there are numerous companies out there that believe in diversity and inclusion or whatever it is. You may want to help the veterans, and there are companies out there that that's a part of their mission. You need to align yourself with companies that will support your vision and your passion. And if you do that, you're going to get the support. But if you're at a place that's not forward thinking, you can expect that your vision and your dreams will die on the vine there, as likely your career will, too, at some point. Yeah, that's that's great advice. It, it's a reality, but it remains disappointing that there are corporations out there that aren't as open to some of the passion of their talented people because there is a talent war going on. And, you know, if you don't support your people's passion, you're going to lose high quality people. That's short sighted, I think. And they have so many places to go now. I remember when I started at CBS, if you wanted to work in television, you had the choice of ABC, NBC, Fox, (laughs) CBS, and then all the technology companies have come in now. So a lot of people that I've worked with, they're now at the technology companies. There's so many opportunities out there for people and many companies' mission statements really focus on social responsibility. And those are the type of companies that we want to be aligned with. Right. What took you to CBS? Did you know they were aligned with your your passion at the time or was it as simple as you wanted to work in television? Well, this is how I ended up in New York City. I went to Indiana University at Bloomington for law school, and there was a gentleman named Rayfield Prevost who was in the Labor Management Council at the National Football League. And he graduated from IU as well, but he made it a point. He was one of these guys who believed in giving back and coming back and helping the next generation. He would always create internship opportunities for IU students. Awesome. Yeah, it was awesome. And one day I was sitting in a class and I didn't have a summer job and there was a piece of paper on the table and it said, Rayfield Prevost is coming to interview for the NFL. And I said, hey, what the heck? I don't want to be in New York, but I'll just fill out the application anyway. And I filled out the application. I ended up getting a job in New York. And I loved it. I loved working for the NFL that summer. And while I was there, I decided I want to work and be a New York lawyer. And again, before LinkedIn and Facebook and all that stuff, they had something called uh, Martindale Hubble. (laughs) You remember that? 
Oh, yeah. Yes, I do. Yes. So old school book, you know, like a uh, encyclopedia of names, but I just committed myself. You know what? I'm going to call everyone in New York in labor and employment and see who will have lunch with me. And that summer, I just called everybody. I called Ronald Green and Epstein Becker and Green. That's how I ended up getting at EB&G because I did a series of cold calls. But I also reached out to a lady that summer. Her name was Susan K. Anderson at CBS in the Labor and Employment Group. And she and I stayed in touch all through the years. I started my job, my career at Epstein Becker and Green. I was there for two years and then came to Safe Offshore. And I really enjoyed that experience in, in your New York office. And one day I was sitting in the office and the phone rang and it was Susan K. Anderson, who I had met some six years prior. And she said, Lori, we have an opening. I thought of you. You should apply. And I applied and I got some great references from Safe Offshore partners like Bill Perkins, who knew the head of the labor group. I got the job and then I was there for nearly two decades. Oh, that's an amazing story. Again, it shows the power of networks and connecting. And the important part, you got to stay in contact with people. Yeah, which is not always easy for people to do, right? Because you get busy and time flies. You've had such great success as an organization with CCWC. You have to have had a bunch of individual success stories where the organization has contributed to success of your membership. Give us an example that you're perhaps most proud of, people who've taken something offered by the organization and accomplished something incredible with it. Yes. Like I said, we started in 2004 with that small group of lawyers, those of us trying to figure it out and figure out our next step. And now what I'm seeing is that's happening. It's kind of like the fruit of the labor that many of people who came to our conference and got career strategies for success and tips on how to own and manage your career, they are now moving into the general counsel position. So like Wanji Walcott, she was one of the early members of CCWC, and she's now the general counsel of Discover. Another young lady, Noni Ellison, she was with us in the early years. She's now the general counsel of Tractor Supply. Rhonda Ferguson, now the general counsel of Allstate. So, you know, I'm now starting to see these are the people who came along that we helped, that we mentored, that we talked to, that we encouraged if they were discouraged and they were able to stay on the path and the course to the C-suite and to being general counsel of a Fortune 500 company. And that was always the vision that our members would ascend to the general counsel position. And now we're strongly believing that our members can now ascend to the board of directors. NASDAQ just put forth a proposed rule that was accepted by the Securities and Exchange Commission for disclosure and board diversity. CCWC wrote a comment letter to the Securities and Exchange Commission, and it was passed. And we have a talented group of diverse women ready to serve, ready to lead, ready to serve on corporate boards. And I believe that as we have moved into the chief legal officer space, we are ready to move into the board room. And my further hope is that we will move to the CEO ranks of Fortune 500 companies as well. 
Let's hope you're right, because the work you've done is fabulous. And to see these success stories must give you a sense of optimism and energy as to the progress, slow though it may be over the years, but tremendous progress being made in enhancing diversity, at least in the corporate side of life. Yeah? I do feel very encouraged when I see the fruit of the labor and you see it actually translating to people moving. You know, one of the things I think we have been very successful in doing as well, partnering with law firms and partnering with corporations with their hiring process. Before, we always heard the same old excuse. We don't have diversity because there are no diverse candidates out there. Well, we know that's not the case now because we have found 4,700 women of color. So now what I see, what I'm really proud of, corporation and law firms are now partnering with us. They're making the CCWC conference a part of the career development of their attorneys, but they also use the event as a recruiting tool to find talent. So there are those companies out there that had no diversity and over time, because they've committed to doing the work, they now have, you know, a legal department with diverse individuals in it. And we all know that when you have diversity, the results are better. There's more profitability. Why wouldn't anyone do it? That's always been a puzzlement to me because diverse teams are 100% of the time better than non-diverse teams. It's just clear, Isabel. Talk a little bit about your relationship with private law firms because you have historically been focused corporate counsel. I mean, it's in your name. But what is your connection with private law firms, AMLAW 100 law firms, programming you offer? Talk a little bit about that side of the equation. That side of the equation really came about, I think, organically. We did focus on women of color who they're in-house. And then when we started moving to the annual conference that we put together, we found that there were women of color who worked at law firms who wanted to be partners or they were partners, but they struggled in the area of client development. So then they came to the CCWC conference and had immediate access to potential clients. They would not have access to these people otherwise. And then many of them were able to come to the conference, connect with the in-house people that were attending, and they were able to develop clients from that and a book of business from that. One individual came and got work from a major corporate client just through the connection at CCWC, so much so that they ended up making that person the managing partner of the firm. So, you know, like I said, there's a lot of isolation out there and you may not have access to people at Fortune 10 companies or Fortune 20 companies, but by coming to our event, you do. And many people at the law firms, they have been able to appreciate the value of that and turn that into career sustainability for themselves at the law firms. That's amazing. Over the next five years, where do you see the organization going? What are your goals and objectives for what you're doing? You know, the work is continuing, you know, even even with law firms, law firms still struggle with their numbers, especially at the partnership level for attorneys of color. And, you know, over the next five years, we're going to be working on numerous programs and initiatives. Recruiting will be getting more focus from us, both at the law firms, both in-house corporations to make sure that 
attorneys of color have access to opportunity and not just entry level roles, but those senior level roles of senior management and ideally the C-suite. That's where the change comes. That's one. Number two, like I mentioned before, we're going to be working with many organizations, especially now that the NASDAQ rule has been approved by the Securities and Exchange Commission to make sure that they have available a diverse slate of candidates for consideration to serve on corporate boards. You're talking about the tone from the top. It doesn't get any more top than being on the board of directors. So, you know, we would love to see our members serving on boards of Fortune 500 companies. And then the next frontier for us as well, we are going to be working with women of color entrepreneurs to provide them mentorship through our legal members. So that that's something I'm really excited about, because for many years, women of color entrepreneurs have had the same challenges that we have all had access to information, to financing. And I'm believing that corporate counsel, women of color lawyers will be able to remove the mystery from that process and provide them great insights to help them grow their businesses. And we're working with our law students, too. That's amazing. Those are some amazing goals. I know we're about out of time, but I'd be remiss if I didn't sort of at least mention that you recently were named one of the top 10 most influential black lawyers of the decade by lawyers of color. First off, congratulations. That's that's an amazing recognition and and well-deserved. I know you're not in this work for accolades. You're in it for the accomplishment and to help others. But it had to feel kind of awesome to be recognized for your work with such an inspiring group of people. Yeah, that's all my mom says is, oh, wow, you're in there with Eric Holder. (laughs) (laughs) It's always good to make your mom proud. (laughs) Yeah, you know, being listed up there with Eric Holder was like, it it, it was became really legitimate for her. Oh, wow, look at Eric Holder. You're in there with Eric Holder. But no, it, it feels good that the work is being recognized and it's always great to understand and know that the work and the effort that it's appreciated by so many. So I'm just thankful and I'm grateful that we can do the work we're doing. I thank Zafar Shaw for setting me on the road (laughs) to do the work through the 501c3 that you helped put together through pro bono services, as well as the CBS executives who made it possible for me to be able to develop, create, and launch CCWC while there. Well, it's an amazing contribution to the legal profession and the work you've done is incredible and your accolades are are well-deserved. And to the extent our firm played an incredibly small part in helping, we're proud of that. But watching what you've done has just been amazing. So congratulations. And Lori, thank you so much for taking the time. I know you're incredibly busy, but it's been a great conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This was so much fun. (laughs) I enjoyed it as well. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.